Last week, we started a brand new series called Wilderness, and we're looking at snapshots in the book of Exodus, particularly the snapshots when Israel leaves Egypt and moves through uh, the wilderness in Exodus chapter 13 to 18, and some of those snapshots there. And last week, if you were with us, and if you weren't, I really encourage you to go back and listen, uh, either through the podcast or YouTube or here as well. But we, 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 took a, a start last week uh, in Exodus 13 and 14 when uh, God rescues Israel from Egypt under the slavery of Egypt and God leads them out of Egypt around the desert at first and then uh, they get to the Red Sea and God leads them through the Red Sea. God rescues Israel and Egypt stays behind and perishes and God uh, just intervenes in that moment. And we ended off um, in that snapshot seeing how Israel is moved to fear the Lord and believe in him. Not fear him like be afraid, but begin to revere him and stand in awe of him. And maybe the, the beginning of what it meant for Israel to worship God, but also to believe in him. And belief is not just some mental ascent, but this, this process, this start that they begin to trust who God is in this moment. And we said this last week, and it's important through our whole series, we said God does not only take them through the wilderness, but shapes them through the wilderness. And we want to apply that to our wilderness-like seasons that we've been in or will be in or maybe that we're in right now. But the, last week, the story, the story just started. And this section of Exodus is, is just a piece of it. But last week seemed like, oh, this big climactic moment. But the story just started, and it's going to get messy. And I'm going to invite you to turn to Exodus 15, uh, because we're going to jump in through a couple of more chapters today and look at another snapshot, Exodus 15, verse 22. So if you've got your Bibles, your real physical Bibles, pull them out, pull that out. That's awesome. If you need to use your, your phone or a tablet, cool, and it'll also be on the screen. And we want to read just a portion and then jump into this snapshot this morning, all right? So let's get ready for that. And before we do, I just want to pray specifically for our time uh, of learning today. God, um, we're excited to jump into this portion of the scriptures and this part of Israel's story and this part of this book of Exodus. Um, Lord, grab our attention, pull us in, and we pray that you would lead us and guide us and help us to 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 grasp something today about who you are and ultimately also where we are and how we can walk with you in this season or any season of our life. God, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's read together. Verse 15. Here's a, another start of a snapshot here in Exodus. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Merah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water and the wood became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. And he said, if you listen carefully to the Lord, your God, and, what, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will, not bring you on any of, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. 
Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Here we find this moment now. They're leaving the Red Sea. God leads them into the desert, and it's called the Desert of Shur. And I don't know if you've ever been through a desert. I haven't been through one like on, in the other part of the, on, in, you know, kind of like the Middle East or some serious desert terrain. But a couple of years ago, my wife and I, um, we flew out to Northern California, and uh, we had to go to a little place called June Lake. Cool spot on the, uh, really, it was on the mountain. It's about seven thousand I think feet from sea level but to get from where we landed in Reno Nevada yes Reno Nevada we got out of that city and then we got onto the interstate and we're driving and driving and driving and it's amazing because I've never driven through kind of desert land like that and my wife and I were just in awe to see how much desert there was around us and it made me think like you know we're driving through this we got a full tank of gas it's about a three hour drive we're gonna be okay the weather was fine but I thought like we paused and got off some spot and tried to explore by foot, you know, where there was like a rest area. And I thought, well, what if I was, what if we were walking this? What if we were, we had no car. What if there was no interstate? What if there was no little rest stops every, you know, 10 kilometers or something? It would really feel like a desert, miles and miles of desert and mountains, And here we are in this snapshot here in Exodus 15 and 16, where Israel now is kind of this back-to-back wilderness situation. The first one is what we've just read, the desert of Shur. But then they get into the desert of sin. has nothing to do with sin, as in the doctrinal sin, but just that's what it was called. And what they find as they walk through the desert, and we get a glimpse of it already at the end of chapter 15, is this fear of scarcity starts to build in them. This fear of lacking what they need starts to build in them. The first desert is a a couple of days in into their journey, but the second desert is about 45 days into their journey. And just stop and think about that for a second. 45 days in the wilderness, two desert regions back to back. What do you lack most in the desert where there's no interstate and no pauses? Well, you lack water and you lack food. And there was no drinking fountains and there was no taco stands along the way. They really didn't have any of that. And so we get this first desert experience here and they have no water. And it becomes the context of their first complaint. Chapter 15, verse 24, it says that they grumble against Moses. Some versions of the Bible actually use the word complain, but the word grumble is, is a great word because it just sounds like grumbling, right? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And, and it's their first complaint. And they're like, what, what's going on here? Like, we, this water is horrible. It was actually bitter. It was called bitter and they couldn't drink it. And they complain. Now God does something miraculous. He gives Moses a piece of wood, throws it in that water. It turns sweet. It becomes drinkable. It's an incredible moment of provision. But here's their first kind of moment of lacking something it was water and their complaint connected to that if we keep reading in chapter 16 they come to now a moment where they're super hungry and they have no food and we read this second complaint in exodus 16 verse 2 it says in the desert the whole community grumbled there's that word again against moses and aaron 
The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. If you were with us last week, it sounds familiar to some of the complaints that Israel was having just before the Red Sea. They're mad. Now again, remember, don't judge Israel too much because we often have short-term memory of what God does. We often forget that God just did something or just came through or maybe other seasons of our lives and they are having short-term memory that God just rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God just brought them through the Red Sea and now they no longer have Egypt trailing them. So don't judge them too quickly because often we have short-term memory and they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're frustrated and they're tired and they're spent. How many times do you get mad at your friend, not because of them, but just because you're hungry, (laughs) just because your stomach is growling and you're irritated and you start getting mad. And here's Israel growing in frustration. They're 45 days into the wilderness And interestingly enough, God uses these moments to test them. We read that word twice in these two chapters, that God tests them. And as he tests them, he actually gives them specific instructions to follow. He wants to see if they're going to follow his instructions. So he tests them in this way. Now, the context of these tests are the provision, or first the lack of water and food, and then the provision that God gives them. Now, just to be clear, passing the test isn't a prerequisite for the provision. God doesn't say, if you do this, then I'll give you water, or if you do this, then I'll send you food. He's not like Pharaoh. In fact, we read there that he is a God who heals, not a God who hurts. And he... He's, he, he comes across where we can understand he's more powerful than Pharaoh and yet he's more compassionate than Pharaoh. But he's also God. And he also wants to teach and test Israel. And he also invites them and calls them to follow his instructions. The context of the test is a provision. The content of the test is more like a principle. And it comes back to what we started talking about last week, this idea of trust. Can we trust God in these moments? And out of this, these instructions, really, I hear questions like, are they committed to God? Will they listen to him? Do they see God as Lord? We can see God committed to them. Will they be committed to him? We can see God fulfilling his covenant relationship with them. Will they be in a committed relationship with him? Will they follow Now, the tests are pretty specific. It's not like it's a list of do's and don'ts for all of life. In this particular moment, it's a test in, hey, this is how I'm going to roll out this food, and will you actually follow along? And God tells them, hey, this is is how this is going to happen. For six days, every day, I'm going to provide food for you. It was bread specifically and meat in the evenings, but let's say bread in the mornings. So for six days, I'm going to do this. Now, uh, you're going to have food every day 
enough for that day. And then on the sixth day, I want you to take twice as much because on the seventh day, nothing's coming. Can you follow these instructions? Can you take the food you need every day for six days? And can you take two times as much for the next day? This is the basic kind of idea of these instructions. Nothing more than that. And the test is, will you follow? Will they follow God's instructions? Now look at the difference between the Red Sea moment and the wilderness moment. In the Red Sea moment, they're following God's leadership. In the wilderness moment, they have to really begin to follow God's lordship. And although these leadership and lordship can be connected, but they can also have some differences. Because if I am in a desperate situation and I'm running and someone says, grab the rope, I'll get you out. Well, I'm just following someone's lead. I don't see them as Lord and I'm desperate. And so as they're walking through the Red Sea and, and Egypt is trailing them, I mean, they're following God's sign with the, the pillar of, of fire and the cloud of smoke. And they're, they're walking, they're walking because they want to get away from Egypt. They're following God's leadership. In the wilderness, they, they, they need to start, start to learn to follow God's lordship, who he is. And ultimately, it comes down to trust again. Will they trust that God's way will work? That God's instructions are good? That God's directions are beneficial for them? And see, even though it's food and water, it's more than just specific instructions about food and water. It's the beginning of God's instructions for life. See, eventually, in this wilderness journey, they're going to hit a mountain. Moses is going to go up it. God's going to give Moses and Israel the Ten Commandments. And they're going to listen to these Ten Commandments And imagine this, if they can't trust God with a six-day feeding schedule, will they trust God with the Ten Commandments? Will they trust God with these bigger instructions, these, these bigger laws, these bigger ideas that have much more ramification than just a daily diet? And so think about that for a second, because this is true for the wisdom and the direction that we find in the Scriptures from God. And we often are left with a choice. Do we trust God's authority? Do we trust his lordship? Do we trust his way? Do we trust the way? In fact, as we look further down the scriptures and past the story of Israel, as Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus' baptism and the Mount of Transfiguration, God's voice is overheard saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus becomes the new Moses. Jesus becomes the, the next step as, 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 as God sends his son for humanity to listen to his son to show us the way. There's a, a, a cool um, TV program on the Disney Channel called The Mandalorian, and it's based out of the whole Star Wars universe. And so I, I ended up watching a little bit about it, a little bit of it. And, and there's a guy named Mando. He's a Mandalorian. It's from a, a people, uh, kind of like a tribe or a group of people that really stick together. And uh, they're, they're, they're kind of like warriors, protectors. Uh, they have a certain way about life. And every time they talk and give instruction or come up against a problem or discern that they need to take a next step, one of their leaders always ends their conversation saying these words, this is the way. This is the way. 
And it's fascinating that they, they have this kind of way about them, that no matter what's going on in the world around them or the empire or the conflict or whatever comes about, they have a specific way that they're following, that they're living out, and they follow it. This is the way. When there's a moment in a, an episode where, where Mando is asked, like, what planet did you grow up on? Basically, they were asking, what people group are you from? What ethnicity are, are you from? You know, how can we label you? And he says these words. He says, the Mandalorians are not a race. They're more of a creed. It's fascinating. He's like, we're not the way we are because of the planet we grew up on. We're the way we are because we follow a creed. It sounds almost Christian-like. And when we think about this, there's a way that the scriptures lead us to. Now, as we walk through the scriptures, there's a variety of, of, of kind of categories, right, that we, we discover the wisdom in the scriptures, the way of God, the way of Christ. One is, I would kind of label it sincerity, right? It's this idea like, like are we going to live in an honest way or a deceiving way? Uh, there's the one around maybe are we going to be uh, live a humble life or a prideful life? Uh, when we think about are we going to be a forgiving person or a resentful or a revengeful person? Are we going to be one who, who confesses uh, easily to one another or one that just holds, holds in? And Jesus, actually, as we continue reading the scriptures, both from the prophets and into, he leads us into this kind of life. Search the scriptures and you'll see it. There's also the way of stewardship where God instructs us, oh, there's hundreds of verses on money and how we use our resources. And so the way of stewardship, the way we use our life, the way we use our resources, there's also the way in terms of how we view sexuality and, and how we view one another and, and how we honor what that looks like in our lives. And then there's the social way, right? Like the way of the prophets calling us to care for the widow and to care for the poor and to care for the orphan, to stand for justice. Jesus calls calls us into that in the New Testament as well. So we see this throughout the scriptures. We don't got time to go through it this morning, but as we read the scriptures, we see this way that God invites us into. Will we trust it, follow it, and actually live into it? Here's a phrase I want you to think about, and it's on the screen. The life God wants to bring you only develops when we bring our life under his leadership. Or you can say lordship. The life God wants to bring you only develops when we bring our life under his leadership. And what we find in this wilderness moment with Israel at this time, it's like a test for Israel. This was class 101, prerequisite kind of 101 in terms of who is God? Do I see him as Lord? And will I trust that he's shaping me towards the life that he's calling me towards? And, and it's not all the things we just mentioned. Here it's just one specific one, and we can call it, I would say, what class would we call it? Maybe it's the class of Sabbath or the class of contentment. This moment of lacking water and food, this moment of following God's instructions was wilderness school for contentment for Israel. Where the rubber met the road in this moment and in following God's instruction was really the wilderness school of contentment. And Sabbath has a lot to do with it. Here's the thing. God keeps his promise. God, God gives them water. He, he turns that water from bitter to sweet. He leads them to a, a part in the wilderness where there's some refreshment, right, with some springs. And then he also gives them bread in the morning and meat at night. 
And so God fulfills his promise. Now, I love, I love kind of the, 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 the description, right, that we read about this bread. In verse 14 and verse 31 of chapter 16, it's like a flaky substance. Wafers kind of taste like honey. They call it manna. And I thought, like, Quebecers know exactly what this is. Do you know what this is? This is the passion flaky dessert that we can find in Maxi or Loblaws, right? It's, it's produced by a Quebec company called Vachon, and uh, they make all kinds of treats. But when you think about that, that flaky thing, now, now don't get me wrong. I, I'm pretty certain that there was no, like, um, cream-filled or raspberry jelly in the manna for Israel. 100%, that's not what God provided. But I just think of that top layer flakiness, that's what I want to imagine in my mind, that when they woke up in the morning... And the dew, you know, kind of like comes away. All of a sudden there's these flakes. And they realize it's a bread substance. It's some kind of a bread substance. And, and I, I, I kind of like that image. I'm probably totally wrong on it, but it just makes me feel good. But here's the point I want to make. Verse 4 and verse 6. Here's what, what the instructions are. Verse 4. Gather enough of that flaky substance for the day. Gather enough of that flaky substance on the sixth day for day six and seven. Verse 16, it reads this way. Gather as much of it as you need. Did you catch that? Not as much as you want. Not as much as you desire. Not enough for, your, you know, for the next season. Just as much as you need. In other words, just enough. Gather enough. Don't gather more. In fact, there was a moment where you're reading the story. It's like those who gathered more and those who gathered less for their families all had enough. It's an amazing outcome. And what they're learning here ultimately with this food instruction is they're learning about Sabbath. And here's, here's how it reads from verse 22 in chapter 16. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, and get this, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded. And they did, not stink, uh, they did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. And you will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will, be, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the, on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then Moses has said, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested, rested on the seventh day. This is amazing because the first time we read about the seventh day rest is in the creation story where God rests on the seventh day. But that was initially an example of rhythm and rest. Never at that point given to humans yet to actually practice. But here in this moment, this first instance where Israel is invited to start practicing the Sabbath. Why? Because Israel is a free people. 
They're not under Egypt's rule. They're not under oppression. They're not under the 24-7 push of Egypt. And God is initially instructing them, you don't have to live like you lived in Egypt. Because when God is leading you and God is providing you, and you, you, don't, you don't need to live with the scarcity mentality. You can trust him. You don't need to fear anymore. In other words, you have enough. You have enough. God will provide. And in this moment, in this, this, this initial teaching of Sabbath that grows, obviously, over their wilderness experience and gets kind of written into the Ten Commandments later on and practiced throughout Scripture, we get this beautiful purpose of the Sabbath that part contemplative, part worshipful, um, definitely a spiritual piece of their life. But then it's this also side of resting, that Sabbath helps us rest, helps us discover we have enough. And God wants to test them in this. There's a story of an old preacher. His name was A.W. Tozer in the 20th century. He was a, a really effective and um, important voice in the 20th century. He had a, a beautiful character about himself, a, a, a real um, disciplined uh, lifestyle of prayer and and um, connection with the Lord and his teachings and ministry was really effective. He, he did something in a season of his life where he wanted to test God's provision. And I'm not sure if he did it all his life or for a portion of his life. But he decided not to take a salary and never to express any need to anyone around him. And he said, if God's going to provide for me, he'll figure it out. And something incredible happened for Tozer. And he attested to it that he discovered God's miraculous provision in those seasons. And he learned to be content and to rest in God and in what he had, that he had enough. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't disregard some biblical wisdom that we see later on about saving and how we spend our money and sharing what we have with others. But here, here's the heart of it. When I think of this and I think of what Israel's learning it's to refuse to live in a restless state of scarcity or greed or consumption. And if we're honest, in our context in Canada, in our context in North America, we often choose scarcity more than, it, more than really the circumstances around us. We, we, don't, we don't live in a part of the world where we're making $2 a day. There is a variety of, uh, for sure, of wealth and income. But when you think about it in our context, and I think for, for many of us that are listening today, it's our posture of consumption. It's our posture of, of wanting more and more or hoarding more and more. And that leads to restlessness. When I read the word enough in Exodus, what they're learning in the wilderness, I read rest. When you have enough and you sense you have enough, and I don't mean those moments where um, you've hit a rock bottom time or where you're truly in need. I mean kind of generally, it's in our minds. Can we trust that today we have enough? And when I read the word enough, I think there's rest there. But when I see the words never enough, I think that's restless. There's no rest in that. Because we're constantly wanting more and more. And we don't trust God's provision. It's referring to this restless desire for more than we need. And when we live with this constant never enough mentality, we become restless. 
There's a story of a circus uh, leader. His name was P.T. Barnum, and it was a popular movie, The Greatest Showman. This guy who came really from, from rags, and he had, he had very little, but he had a dream, and he loved the circus, and he loved to entertain, and, and, and his family was close, and they had a beautiful relationship, and something struck. He started to entertain people, and it started to get popular and sensational and big. But something along the way for Barnum, something started to crack. And instead of feeling like he had enough, he started to feel like he'd never had enough. And he kept growing and growing and growing and expanding. And it started to affect his heart and his emotions and even his relationships. He was on tour. And one of the the singers that was on tour with him, he started to have feelings for her. And, you know, and his wife and his kids were back home. And there's this moment where she's singing this song. The song is actually called Never Enough. And she's singing this song. She's belting it out in this opera house. And he's standing listening to her. And he starts to realize, oh, my gosh, that's me. I always, why do I feel like I never have enough? And he started to take stock of his life and his, his wife and his kids. And before he'd make a horrible mistake, he just, he shifted and he went back. And he started to posture himself differently. We, all, we often fall into that trap. Because culture often calls us to, leads us to, deceives us to. And sometimes it's wilderness-like experiences that have a way of stripping us down to our needs, forcing us to trust God, forcing us to know that we do have enough. And we learn something in these seasons that we can't learn in any other seasons. We learn to trust him. We learn to turn to him. We learn this when we're confronted with our need for provision, but not just for provision, for other things in life too, that we can trust God that we can lean into him. We can learn to rest in him and his provision and his instructions. Now, how do we learn something like that? I'm going to just wrap up with just a couple of words this week. Maybe you've gone through a wilderness-like experience and you recognize already that that wilderness stripped you of, of, of certain things. Maybe it was a financial resource thing. Maybe it was relational. Maybe it was emotional. I'm not sure. And maybe in, those, in that season, you're, you've already learned Oh, wow, I, I can turn to God. I can trust in God. Maybe you've, you've had these moments where you saw God work and you turned to him and you, you actually did trust him. And then you learned this. But some of us don't always learn that easily. And some of us, when we're not in a wilderness situation, sometimes take it for granted. So how do we practice this? How do we practice this? Maybe nurture it. And so just, just a couple of things as we wrap this up. The first thing is the idea of our treasures. And I'm going to just ask you this. This week, as you're praying, as you're thinking, as you're reflecting, maybe journaling, answer this question. How do your spending habits reflect an enough mentality or a never enough mentality? How do your spending habits reflect an enough mentality or a never enough mentality? You know, we think that that consumption is down because we can't go to the mall. But people are like, the lights go off in their, in their brain when the doorbell rings and, and an Amazon box is at the door. It's like, I feel so happy now because I've just bought something and it makes me good. And so sometimes these are deceiving feelings. Of course, you need some of the stuff that you buy online. But think about that. What are our spending habits like? Not enough or never enough? Think of the, the hoarding that went on uh, over the pandemic where people bought months and months of toilet paper and not thinking about maybe some other people that needed toilet paper. What do your spending habits reflect? Is it an enough or not enough posture? 
And invite God then to help you manage your spending in such a way that you're resting in him. That you're resting in him. What are your, how do your giving habits reflect an enough or never enough posture? Sometimes we hold on to things so tightly and we're so, over, so cautious even though we're going to be okay, but we hold on and then we, 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 we keep a closed fist, not allowing anything out to share, to give, to help. Generosity nurtures a life of open hands and scarcity nurtures a life with closed hands. And this usually doesn't have much to do with how much you make because there are people in other parts of the world that make so little that live with open hands to their friends and their brothers and their sisters. Maybe in the practice of of tithing even where we read this in the scriptures like a law in the Old Testament but more of a principle in the New Testament where we just give automatically of our income to trust God. Can we live open-handed? God's provided an income of $1,000. Can I trust God to live off 900 and give the rest and let it go to believe that he's provided? But treasure is not the only thing. It's even our time. Here's the practice of Sabbath, right? The practice of Sabbath is blocking off 24 hours in your week when you're not producing for your own benefit where you're just trusting the Lord. It's, it's a spiritual thing and it's a practical thing. Because the 24-7 work mentality that Israel was coming out of, that often we're also forced, it's a never stop, never stop, because I can't stop, because I need to produce more, because I'm afraid if I don't produce more, I'm not going to have enough. And for some of us, for a lot of us probably, no one is actually forcing you to work 24-7. Often it's your own posture. And here's the question, who are you really trusting? Ask that question as you're praying this week and ask God to lead you. And then here's this last one. It's the time capsule, I call it, because there's something really cool that happens at the end of this snapshot. In verse 32, Moses says to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Here's verse 32. That's what you have on your screen. This is what the Lord commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. This is amazing. Here's this bread that God says, you know, don't leave it overnight. Don't take too much because it's going to spoil. But for this one piece of bread, stick it in a jar, seal it. Why? And it's going to be okay. Why? To show the next generation that I provided. To show the next generation that you had enough. To show the next generation that you were able to rest in me even in the wilderness. This is so vital because it's in the wilderness moments where we might fear this the most. But God's saying, make this a reminder for the next generation so you can teach them and show them, even when they're not in the wilderness, that they can trust me every single day. Parents, this is so vital for you, regardless of the age of your kids, to demonstrate to them, to show them how you trust God with your treasure, how you trust God with your time, and then to log those stories and let them remember these stories and tell them stories of how you trusted God, of how you rested in him, of how you learned to grow in contentment. But it's not just for parents, all of us. We all have a responsibility for the next generation as a church, 
as a body, as a family, to show the next generation this. And then here's how this ends. I love this last line of this snapshot. Verse 34, the Lord commanded Moses. Oh, wrong one. I missed it. Here it is, verse 35. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. The Israelites ate manna for how long? For 40 years. God provided for them. They had enough for 40 years in the wilderness. For 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't just six days. It wasn't just a few weeks. It wasn't just a quarter. It wasn't just a year. For 40 years. I hope that encourages you as it encourages me to grow in my trust in the Lord. That when he instructs me in all ways of life, but particularly in this, that I can actually follow his way, follow his instructions. Whether it's in sincerity, sexuality, stewardship, social, but especially here in this Sabbath idea and this idea of contentment. Let's pray. God, we are torn uh, from one side to the other often in our culture that often God produces in us a, a, a consuming type of, of mentality. And even when we have enough in the fridge or we have enough in the bank account or whatever it might be, God, often we have a scarcity mentality. And sometimes it leads us to consumption. Sometimes it leads us to hoarding. Sometimes it leads us to fear. Oh, God, help us to trust you. And I pray, Lord, that even if it's a wilderness-like experience that has to teach us, may we embrace it and learn it, God. Help us to trust you for your provision and for all things. And ultimately, because you are Lord and your instructions to us are good. And for some of us, God, all of us probably that just need to grow in this, empower us by your Holy Spirit this week. Help us to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In your name we pray. Amen.